Morning, Grace Fellowship. <clears throat> um, there's a lot of things that I should say, probably. But uh, one thing is necessary. When the elders gave me time out of the pulpit and away from the office and to pastor it, Well, I spent a couple months kind of groping for who I am. Felt rather lost. Um, and I'm a little ashamed to admit it. I don't know if any of us really know how much we wrap up who we are in what we do. And so, it becomes idolatry. Approved, cheered on, championed, but it's ugly. So before I pick up this mantle again and declare God's word to you, I first want to confess to you that uh, I don't know when it started, but um, ministry for some time became who I thought I was, my standing before Christ, my relationship with him, and that hurts you, and so I want you to forgive me. God really brought it home to me because he put our family through some things and there was nowhere to hide. There's no job to go do. There's no sermon to study for, Bible study to prepare, counseling session to go to, or anything else. And so sitting alone in a, at the time, a rather heap of a house on a hot August afternoon, Reading the Bible. These words meant something more than they ever had before. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two they covered his face, their face, two they covered their feet, and two they flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke, and I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphim flew to me, having his hand on a burning coal, and he took it, the tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Grace Fellowship, I thank you for giving me the opportunity to actually know those words are true. To see the Lord not through a job or through studying for sermons, but to see him high and lifted up. And when I see him, and when you see him, we should see that we are unclean. Our lips are unclean. And we should take heart that when we see it, he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And so my confession to you is that I want to rejoin the ministry God has called me to. I started at 19, I, 
at some point in there between 19 and 42, it became who I thought I was before God, and now I know it's not, and so I just, when I, I'm preaching this month and once next month, and then in January, I'll be back, and that'll be different than it ever has been, and I pray that what the biggest difference is, is that I never pick up the idolatry again, but that I just always cling to the Lord, and I challenge you to do the same thing. Who you are is not what you do. Who you are is what God has made you for, and it's for his glory. That's what I've learned in these months. One thing. But that's not the sermon. (laughs) That's the confession and the thank you. Turn to Acts chapter 15. I want to bring a sermon to you entitled, Making Cuts for the Kingdom. Acts 15, 36 through 6, 5. And the big idea I really do believe about this text is we must be willing to sacrifice relationships, comfort, and customs so that we can be focused on the gospel mission. We have to be willing to sacrifice, to make changes, to cut things out of our lives that keep us from the mission that God has called all of us to, not just those in full-time vocational pastorates or missionaries, but you in the pew. We have been called and commissioned to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. So as the psalmist says, the glory of the Lord shall fill the earth as the water fills the sea. Our journey in Acts has been encouraging to this point for many reasons. Luke's entire writing is intended to show us the powerful work of the resurrected and reigning Lord Jesus through the moving of the Holy Spirit in and with His church. That's what it is. People call it the Acts of the Apostles. And I understand the title, but really, I believe that this is the Acts of the risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ through the Spirit and the church. This is what God is doing in this era of His redemptive plan to bring people to Himself. His mission is unchanged. His method now is the church. But His mission is the same. From the garden to today, bring people to Him to worship Him. And Jesus gives us the outline in his own, out of His own lips in Acts 1-8 for this entire book. And He said this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Thus the reigning Lord through the Holy Spirit to the church says this, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Isn't that what we are getting to see, Grace Fellowship? As we walk through the pages of Acts, we are seeing the words of Jesus come to life. Acts 1 and 2 give us the details of the Holy Spirit on the disciples descending and filling them for ministry. And the disciples go forth in power in Acts 2.14 through 7.60. We see that the gospel spreads through all of Jerusalem. 3,000 people are added to the church. Probably 3,000 men, not counting women and children. That's a common way that the Hebrew people counted things was by men. So maybe... 3,000 only, or maybe upwards of 10,000 people were added to the church in one day from one sermon through the power of the Holy Spirit. And all of them were together and had all things in common, and they were multiplying daily those who were being added to the church from there. Can you imagine the work of the Spirit as He's saving thousands upon thousands of people in Jerusalem and then in Judea? The ministry of Peter, and we see the ministry of Stephen as he preaches his great sermon in Acts 7 and dies for preaching the power of Christ to the Gentiles. And then in Acts 8, 4 through 25, the gospel spreads to Samaria through the ministry of Philip. And Peter is given a vision in Acts 10 about this man uh, or the need for the gospel to go to the Gentiles. What I have called clean, you shall never call unclean. Three times he gets the vision and he gets the message. He's as hard-headed as we are. And God sends him to Cornelius. And Cornelius 
is saved. But in between Acts, the end of Acts 7, beginning of 8, and Acts 10, an event happens that changes and shifts things even again. And that's the saving of a Pharisee named Saul, who was persecuting the church daily, crushing under his feet those who would confess Christ as the Messiah. He's dragging them out of their homes. He's imprisoning them. He's taking their goods. He's having them stoned, as we see in Stephen's case. Saul was ravishing, ravaging the church and persecuting Christ until Jesus Christ appeared to him, knocking him flat on the ground and blinding him by his glorious light. Saul is sent to Ananias, and there he fasts and prays, and he receives a commission to the glorious gospel ministry. He would preach the gospel to the Gentiles and to kings and to the children of Israel. This was his commission. <laughs> and he receives his sight. Jesus' words are being fulfilled right before our eyes. The witnesses are taking the truth of the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and now on the verge of taking it to the ends of the earth. In Acts 9, we are told that Barnabas meets Saul for the purpose of vouching for him in front of the people at Jerusalem. Because as you can imagine, when you spend your life imprisoning people, beating them, and having them stoned, they're not all excited when somebody says, oh, Saul's in town, and guess what? He's a Christian. It feels a little like you're a Russian inviting a KGB uh, agent into your home to eat and sleep with you. This isn't exactly smart on human level, right? But Barnabas, Barnabas comes and vouches for him. He's accepted by the brothers. He's proves himself to be faithful. And the church has peace in this entire region. And, and Luke says it's built up and multiplies in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. All of this has taken place in the first nine chapters of Acts. The Holy Spirit fills the Gentile believers in chapter 10. And Peter reports what's happened to the church in Jerusalem. Having heard about the powerful work of the Spirit to save Cornelius and his household, the Jewish Christians at Jerusalem fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. At the end of chapter 11, beginning in verse 19, Luke records how the church at Antioch became well known to all the church in Judea and Jerusalem. So, who do they send but Barnabas? Barnabas goes to investigate the work at Antioch and to confirm what was being done in that place. And he also leaves Antioch, Syria, and goes up to Tarsus to find Paul. When he found him, they go together to Antioch and they disciple the church in Antioch for a year together. I want to emphasize that. It seems like a small detail, but I emphasize what Barnabas has been doing for the reasons that you will find out as we go through the sermon today. Barnabas' name is Joseph, but he's called by the brothers Barnabas, or son of encouragement, according to Acts 4.36. He's seen in Acts as a man willing to go to great lengths to show mercy and grace in personal relationships. Barnabas is one of the reasons that Paul is accepted by the believers. He took the newly converted Paul under his wing. He helped him in the ministry at Antioch, and he became Paul's first missionary partner. In Acts 13, when the church set them apart by the prompting of the Holy Spirit to take the gospel into Asia Minor and regions beyond. Grace Fellowship, we, every one of us needs a Barnabas in our life. Every one of us a person that shows us the mercy and grace of God. Someone that sees the potential we have to be used in the kingdom and displays loyalty and confidence in us as they labor with us to take the message to the masses. But in the first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas and John Mark, Barnabas' cousin, encounter persecution and suffering for the sake of of the kingdom. We're told by Luke that they took the gospel to Cyprus, to Antioch, little Antioch as Carlton Brown called it, <laughs> Pisidia, all the way to Iconium and Lystra before returning to Antioch of Syria through traveling to the cities of Perga and Italia. 
The first missionary trip was massively successful, but it was filled with near-death experiences, persecution, rejection, and much suffering, which Paul says in chapter 14, we must go through to inherit the kingdom of heaven. We must go through it. It's not optional. It can't be, it can't be avoided. And this introduces some of the problem we must deal with today in our text. Young Mark deserted the work of the mission before they even really got started. They were in Barnabas' home island of Cyprus doing work among the people there. And they go over into the mainland and they begin to do work. And at the first sign of opposition, Mark tucks tail and runs. He goes home. He went back to Mama in Jerusalem. Mary, I'm sure, was glad to see her son return, but probably a little disappointed in his early exit strategy. You know, I was thinking this week about my own life, you know, and um, we were skinning a deer one time at the skinning shed, and I don't even remember what it was about, but, you know, me and my dad got into an argument. That's not unusual necessarily. Um, and I just remember, I started crying. And I, I was 12 or 13 years old, I started crying. And, and uh, my dad so affectionately said, wah, wah, wah. i never forget. <laughs> I remember what it was. I, I accidentally, this is a little gross, but I actually punctured the guts. And so the smell and the sight was just, ugh, it was just too much. And I started fussing about it. And he kind of said something and called me a sissy or something. I started crying. Then he... And I'll never forget, he said, well, just run home and tell mama. Probably a little bit like Paul felt about John Mark. Cry and complain like a baby. Oh, yeah, go ahead, get on the boat, head on home. Go, go get under mama's nurse coat. A problem exists here. And we're going to explore it this week, uh, this week as we talk about our passage. It was a stain on his character. It brought him into question as to whether he was fit for the work of the ministry, at least in Paul's mind. The past two weeks, we've heard about this great council of Jerusalem, which focused on the justification by grace through faith in Christ alone. Paul and Barnabas, backed up by Peter, testify that the circumcision and other Mosaic law ceremonies cannot be added to the gospel. The gospel is the gift of God given by the person and work of Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit and the preaching of God's Word. We cannot add any work to the work of Christ or we are changing the gospel. And if we change the gospel, then we offer no gospel. We offer a curse to the people. If Paul and Barnabas had failed to make their case to the apostles and the elders at the church in Jerusalem, then Grace Fellowship would not exist. All of Christianity would have ceased. That's how important the council at Jerusalem is. If the gospel gets changed, the power of the Spirit stops, and the work of, the Holy, of, of Jesus Christ cannot continue, and the church fails. That's how vital Acts 15 was, in case we've forgotten. It was the great council of the church. It's never been matched. It never will be matched. But can I tell you something? We have no need to worry that they might have failed in Jerusalem or that we might fail in Anniston. Because King Jesus is building his church. And he has said the hellish false teachers and all hell itself will not prevail against it. We march in the army of the victorious one. If we are led like lambs to a slaughter, we only take on his character even more. And we show the people the value of this message we bring to them. And the value of the great king that stands behind the message and the glory of the Lord. So if we die, let us die. That's what Paul's saying. If we die, let us die. Because when our blood goes into the ground, it will be the fertile water that brings forth the seed of the gospel and new life in every place for the glory of God. It's unstoppable, church. 
It's unstoppable what God is doing. That's what we've seen. 2,000 years ago, God was on a mission, and now God is on a mission in the same way. And we will not fail as long as we hold to Christ and his gospel. We cannot fail. The world will only have to bend the knee to our king. So this is the summary of Acts. And now I want to read the text that we're going to look at today. Verse 36 says, And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the whole the word we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. So John Mark's obviously come back with them from Jerusalem with this letter. Him and Silas and Justice and Paul and Barnabas have returned to Antioch, and John Mark is on Barnabas's mind. He wants to take him. Verse 38 says, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn. Also, we could say he deserted from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commanded by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. Let's pray. Father, as we come before your word now, we humbly bow the knee to you to your spirit, to your work that you want to do right now in these moments that we have together. I pray, God, that you would remove every other concern of this world, every other thought that is stray, and focus our hearts and our minds exactly to your word. Help us understand. Give us a clean understanding, a fresh understanding of you and your work in this world through us, and then give us courage that we not run home to mom, but we run forward into death, if that's what's called. It's in your name we pray. Amen. We just read the text for the day, and it's a division in the panels of Acts. We're about to go into the second missionary journey. Before they go on the second missionary journey, they want to go back and strengthen the churches in the first missionary journey. And so that's their desire, and that's what Paul offers to Barnabas. But what we need to remember is the central focus of this text. What is it? We must be willing to sacrifice relationships, comfort, customs for the sake of the gospel mission. Paul and Barnabas have just argued for the content of the gospel before the brothers and the apostles at Jerusalem. They had perfect unity on what they should preach but when they go forward. And now, in our text, they are immediately disagreeing with one another about how that would have, should happen. What's the best way to carry out the mission? They have no disagreement about the mission. They have a disagreement about the practical matters surrounding carrying out the mission and the ministry. So the first thing I want us to see is that the unity in the gospel does not always mean that we will agree on, uh, on the practical matters. We will not always agree on practical matters. Verse 39 through 41, that's exactly what happened. Paul says, let's go back and meet these brothers that we led to the Lord and make sure they're strengthened and they have all that they need and, and let's do this together. And the planned route, apparently, was to go reverse order of what they had gone before. They sailed, remember, to Cyprus and then from Cyprus they went to the mainland. They traveled through Antioch, uh, Pisidia, and then all the way around to Italia and back to Antioch, Syria. 
This time, because they have the letters in hand, and remember the letters were written for where? Antioch, Syria, Cilicia, Perga. These are the places that they were specifically told, take these decisions, take them back to the brothers there and teach them to them, train them. So what does Paul do? He says, we're on the mission. Hey, I have a desire to go to people who've never heard gospel preaching. They've never heard of Christ. But before we do that, we'll be obedient to the council. We're going to go back and deliver these decisions so there's no confusion. And the false teachers are shut up. They're put down. They're, they're run out of town. That's the plan. Barnabas wants to take John Mark. Paul says, no way, Jose. Or no way, Joseph. Either way. You missed my corny jokes. He wasn't going to stand for it. John Mark was a deserter. Have you ever been betrayed by a brother? Have you ever been betrayed by a brother or sister over the gospel? Have you ever had your life on the line? And your closest companion says, ah, it's just a little too far for me. I think I'll go home. I've never faced that. I've never faced that. I've been betrayed. I've been betrayed, I think, over the gospel. But I've never had my neck on the line, literally about to die for the faith. And the guy next to me says, yeah, that's a little much for me. I'm going to go home. We don't know exactly why John Mark went home. But, I mean, let's put it together. Rough travels, Right? Eating foreign foods, going to places we've never been, catching diseases we've never caught, preaching the gospel and getting stoned. Like these things aren't things we're all signing up for. So before you get too down on John Martin, think what a quitter. I mean, this is amazing stuff they're having to face. This isn't some walk in the park and he left. And now Barnabas says, hey, let's take him with us. Let's, let's, let's get this young man grown up. Let's disciple him. And Paul's like, no, I, other people can disciple him. I ain't got time for that. He thinks it was tough to sell to Cyprus and walk the easy way. We're about to go through the Sicilian gates, the Cilician gates, the toughest, most ruggish, rugged pass in the Taurus Mountains. Just that alone is enough to make a grown man cry. And you want to take this guy? Barnabas in this passage, though, church, is the picture of God's mercy and grace. He's a picture of it. He's advocating for a young Mark to receive a second chance in the mission. This is consistent with what we learned about him already, right? When Paul was struggling, what did Barnabas do? He vouched for him. And when Paul was in Tarsus, back home learning and growing in the faith, what did Barnabas do? He went and got that man that had so much potential and brought him and ministered with him. This is consistent with who Barnabas is. He's not playing favorites with Mark. Yes, it's his cousin. Yes, he loves him, I'm sure. Yes, he feels bad for his aunt who's shamed and embarrassed because her son left the mission. I've read all those commentary statements. But the bottom line is Barnabas consistently loves people with the love and mercy and grace of the Lord Jesus. And he's doing it today. Same way in our text. He's advocating Paul is not the picture of mercy and grace. Imagine that. Paul is a picture of laser focus on mission. Paul is a picture of what Jesus told all of us, church. Take up your cross and follow me. And Paul is saying Mark dropped his cross and went home. I'm not sure, but I feel like what's going on here is deep, don't you? We got a man advocating for grace, mercy, and a second chance, and we got a man saying we are laser-focused on a rugged mission that's going to cost us our lives, and he won't carry his cross. He won't carry his weight. He will be a blasphemy to the power of God, and I'm not taking him. Matter of fact, I wonder, I wonder, this is my wondering, did Paul question whether Mark was even a true believer? You say, oh, that's too much. But listen to me, church. If we cowered out in the day of persecution, 
Revelation says cowards, cowards will not inherit the kingdom of God. Cowards do not make it. I wonder if Paul's saying, I'm not sure about that guy. Paul, a picture of carrying the cross, a picture of focus on the mission. Mark has proven himself untrustworthy in the first journey, according to Acts 13, 13. They had not reached the greatest persecution, suffering, and even threat of death. And John Mark went home to Mary's house. For Paul, this meant he was not qualified to go on the second journey. Paul and Barnabas, the passage says, you see the words there, 39, how sharp, the word that's used here that we translate sharp disagreement in the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, was used to refer, only, only used to refer to God's wrath against sin. It's used in Acts 17, verse 16, when Paul is in Athens and he sees the idolaters and their idols. And it says his spirit was stirred up within him. Same emotion. Same passion. Same burning and yearning heart. The Apostle Paul was not merely saying, you know, I kind of disagree. I'm not sure. You know, let's think about it. The Apostle Paul is angry at the mere suggestion that we would take John Mark. I don't think he sinned because you can be angry and sin not. The Bible never charges either of these men, Barnabas or Saul, Paul, with sin. The Bible never says Barnabas was right, Paul was wrong, or Paul was right and Barnabas was wrong. The Bible doesn't weigh in on that. I think that's significant. These two men agree on the gospel, but they don't agree on the practical matter of how to go forward with their men. They have a sharp disagreement. They are provoked in their spirit. Because of their fracture, Barnabas takes Mark and goes to Cyprus. Cyprus is Barnabas' hometown, home island, home region. He takes the gospel there with Mark. And Paul takes Silas and goes through the Sicilian gates to revisit the churches in Syria, Cilicia, and beyond into southern Galatia. The result of this split then, the result. We've already said we don't know who was right and wrong, right? Maybe they're both right. I'll hold that out there. That might be true. They might, might both be right. You say they can't both be right. Yes, they can. Because why? Barnabas is advocating for mercy and grace. And he wants to give a second chance to his disciple. And Paul is laser focused on the calling God has put before him. And so therefore he can't have a deserter. These two principles are not either wrong. They're both right. And when we apply them, we come into this sharp disagreement with one another. And then what do we do? Well, what happened is Barnabas took Mark and goes to Cyprus. And Paul takes Silas and goes on in the mission as he had wanted to. And this, what ends up happening in this is the execution of the exact plan they laid out in verse 36. What was the plan in verse 36? Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. So how did they plan to do it? Together. In reverse order. How did it end up happening? Two mission teams. One goes to Cyprus, the other goes in reverse order. God's work still gets done. God's mission still moves forward. Secondly, I want us to see that unity in the gospel does require us to maintain respect and love, even when we disagree and have to part ways. It's not an option to get into a sharp disagreement with a brother or sister and then go behind them and tear down and assassinate their character. That's not okay. That is for sure sin. And God will not bless that. But it's possible to leave and uphold one another. I think it's important that we see how these two leaders butted heads. Paul and Barnabas had a true, 
falling out over the usefulness of John Mark, but they seem to have refrained from assassinating one another's characters. How can we know this? Well, I think it takes a little bit of investigation, which I gladly did this week, and also a little bit of inference, which is always required on a question like this. We have to see the Bible and, and see it together, not in isolation. But I do think it's pretty clear. First of all, the first piece of evidence is that Luke doesn't say either of these men is right or wrong. He leaves it silent. Many people have weighed in on their opinion. John Calvin said that Paul was wrong and Barnabas was right. And others have said Barnabas was wrong and Paul was right. But the Bible doesn't say either one was right or wrong. And so I think that's the first thing we need to recognize. Second of all, Paul is showing us what it looks like to hold the line, to remain focused on the mission. In this world, there is no room for anyone who quits. And he may even be concerned about taking John Mark back to the very places that he left before because they would be confused. Like, what? what this guy quit. He deserted. He didn't show faithfulness. Who is he? Why is he here? Barnabas other hand is showing us that it looks what it looks like to give grace and mercy to those who fail some of us some of us some of us have failed in here this morning some of you sit here right now under a weight of guilt over failure You want to believe that God has no use for you because you're a failure. But Barnabas wants you to know that, believe, that he believes that you can be extended mercy. He believes with training and encouragement you can rejoin the fight. Listen to why I say that. Some of you have, in your minds, been disqualified because of your lack of faithfulness to your neighbor, to your coworker, to your relative. Some of you have sinned, and therefore you think, my sin means that I'm done. I'm just going to live out my days, and that's it. I'll die, and maybe God will help let me in by the skin of my teeth into his heaven. I believe what the Holy Spirit's teaching us through Barnabas is that that's not how God sees you. What God would say to you is, you have failed. And that's why my son died for you. Join the failures, the mess ups, the defeated, the sinners. The outcast, the lepers, the lame, the blind join us in saying, my failure magnifies the greatness of Jesus Christ and humbles me to the dust. And it's in those broken vessels, Barnabas is saying, Paul, it's in those broken vessels that Jesus Christ is magnified. And I think Paul, an older Paul, learned this lesson. We'll talk about that in a minute. I get excited just thinking about it. Second Timothy. Second is Timothy. Oh, excuse me, I skipped down. I'm out of practice here. Second, wrong second. Paul and Barnabas are blessed by the church. I know it looks like in your text in the English that only Paul and Silas are blessed. But actually... What's there is that both missions are blessed by the church. Both men are sent out from Antioch again on their separate missions. Third, in 10 years or so, in about 10 years, maybe a little longer, Paul is going to actually ask that John Mark join him. Because I need him. 
Remember I just said I was excited about that part? Listen. Failure, deserter, John Mark, discipled by Barnabas on the Isle of Cyprus. Can you imagine when he received the letter that said, the apostle wants you. He needs you. Grace Fellowship, don't we want to be those kinds of people? Don't we want a church with Barnabas's and Paul's? Barnabas's that pick us up and love us and disciple us. Not, a bit, not abide with our sin, but point our sin out and say there's grace and mercy to cover that. And you are a broken vessel, but you are a vessel. And God wants to use you in his ministry. And don't we want the Paul's that say, until you show yourself faithful, I will not spend my time. I will not give my resources to you because I'm limited and I've got to get the mission to the ends of the earth. But with a humility that once that metal is proven in you, that old man Paul would write back and say, come to me. I want you on my team. Listen, this I'm the kid that uh, when I was young, if, you don't, if this doesn't hit you where you are, that's fine. I was the husky kid that never got picked in the pickup basketball games, ever, ever. Every PE I stood and like wanted in the game, and I never could get in. Fourth, fifth, sixth grade, man, I was just burning inside. I wanted to play, put me in. I never made the all-star team as a little kid. I, I was always that kid that walked away like with, with just a participation trophy that I just threw away. I didn't want it. I was that guy. And then the summer between seventh and eighth grade, I grew. And all those years of getting rejected came out the first time we went to PE, and somebody said, Give him a shot. Man, I came off the bench like fire. In my mind, at least. <laughs> it's the same thing with John Mark. Can't you hear see him? Paul wants me. Oh, God, your grace is so unbelievable. Your mercy knows no end. Your power is made perfect in my weakness. And he jumped on the next donkey or whatever would take him and got there. He got there. It wouldn't have happened without Barnabas. Without Barnabas, he quits and goes back to Mary's house and, I don't know, becomes a banker or something. But Barnabas encouraged him and trained him up and poured his life into him. And Paul said he's needed. In 2 Timothy 4, 9 through 11, he's counted among the faithful that Paul wants in his life. In Colossians chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, he talks about Aristarchus and Justice and John Mark, the only three of the circumcision that are with me in the kingdom of God, in the work of the kingdom of God. What a commendation. He's the reverse Demas. Demas, if you know your history, Demas was with Paul. He was serving the Lord. He was right there, and then he was just there, and then he forsook them for the cares of this world. John Mark started out, went home, loser, derelict, deserter. I can't take him, and then Paul says, I need him. What's the difference? Demas didn't receive the grace the way John Mark received grace. John Mark's not better than Demas. Demas is not worse than John Mark. They both were there. One was discipled, raised up, poured into the grace of God. And the Holy Spirit did what they only can do, and he was useful at the end of his life. Don't you want to be known as that young John Mark's in this congregation? Don't you want to be known not how you started, not how the middle went, but how the end was burning on fire for Jesus Christ and the mission? If you're 70 in here today, or if you're 7, you can be used for the kingdom of God. But humble yourself and be discipled. John Mark didn't quit when Paul rejected him. He got on a boat, went to Cyprus, and learned how to be a missionary. Everybody's not Adoniram Judson. 
Some of us need some training. And God will get the glory. So we see here that Barnabas is never mentioned again in Acts, but his ministry to Mark is shown out into the ages. He never left Cyprus again as far as we know. Church history says he didn't. Strengthened Mark there. He strengthened Mark there in Cyprus, and then Mark became useful. It's not just to Paul that he was useful, but to Peter also. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 12 through 14, Peter actually calls Mark his son. So a man that started out a deserter became a son and useful in the ministry. And the difference was the mercy and grace of God. And brothers in his life, mainly Barnabas, who would love him even though he was unlovable and encourage him and build him up. God takes human conflict, like we've seen in this passage so far, and he turns into mission multiplication. This is not the only sacrifice that we have to be willing to make, the sacrifice of relationship, but we also need to be willing to make the sacrifice of comfort and custom. And this part of the sermon will move a little quicker. The first thing we see in chapter 16 is that the gospel mission will often require us to take risks and sacrifice comfort and face persecution. Paul comes to Derby and Lystra, and in that, there's, it's just a... It's just a continuation, really. It's no huge expansion of what happened there. But here's what we do know. If you faced the persecution the first time, you probably faced it the second time. I mean, it's not like we're to believe that because a small church is growing in these places that now there's no persecution. They stoned him almost to death in some of these places. They beat him. They kicked him out. They raised up a riot against him. And then he comes back just a short time later, and they're just like, oh, yeah, it's Paul. Good, good to see you. Glad you're back. Nice scar. No. That's not the, I don't take that. Luke just writes like any historian. Like, I already told you about all they faced. They faced it again. He went back into these same places. And the mission will require us to take risk. It will require us to sacrifice our comfort. Just passing through the Taurus Mountains was dangerous in itself. You could fall to your death just like this. Secondly, in this passage, this part of the passage, we see the gospel mission will require us to tear down any cultural or custom roadblock that keeps us from proclaiming the gospel. This is the larger point. Paul finds Timothy, and Timothy is the son of a Jewish woman, which makes him a Jew, even though his daddy is a Greek. His daddy is dead, most likely. He was not a believer, most likely, but Eunice and Lois are believers. Lois and Eunice have passed on their faith to their young son and grandson, Timothy. We read about it in 2 Timothy chapter 1. He's probably around 20, 25 years old, somewhere in there. He's a man. He's young, but he's a man. And the most dreaded words in the passage. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him. And circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew his father was Greek. I, I would just say, Paul was willing to cut loose of friends and to cut the foreskin of his soon companion because the mission required it. He couldn't keep Barnabas in his life, and Timothy had to be circumcised. Why? For the mission. Why would he ask Timothy to be circumcised when he's literally, Silas is holding a decree <laughs> from the mother church that says, you don't have to be circumcised. I can imagine Timothy... <laughs> Hold up. Read that letter again. Read it again. Read it again. Read it again. <laughs> oh, dear Lord. <laughs> Help Brother Paul. Why would he do this? Well, because Paul absolutely affirmed that circumcision was not necessary. And neither was any of the Mosaic Law Covenant necessary for salvation. He affirmed it. He preached this gospel. We get his preaching of this gospel in 
Galatians chapter 5. Galatians, yeah, hold your place here and look at Galatians chapter 5 quickly with me here. This is important. Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Paul says this, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be to no advantage to you. What? Well, he circumcised Timothy, and he's saying it's to no advantage. Keep reading. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law. That's the key. You see, his teaching about circumcision was not that circumcision was bad or that sometimes circumcision wouldn't be profitable for some things. His point with circumcision was nothing is part of the gospel except the finished work of Jesus Christ. So if you submit to circumcision because you think it makes you more acceptable to God, then you've canceled Christ in your life. You've cut Christ off. Very significant choice of words, right? When you circumcise yourself because you believe it makes you saved, you are cutting Christ off. Now, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, here we are, this is our text, for Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything, but only faith working out in love. Why would he circumcise Timothy? Because it was faith working itself out in love. What do I mean? This was not so that Timothy would become a Christian. Timothy was a believer. But his mother was a Jew. So every Jewish synagogue they came to would expect him to be circumcised. Knowing that his father was a Greek and he is uncircumcised makes him an apostate. If Paul takes an apostate on the mission, a one who's fallen away from Jewish life, if he takes him on the mission, then Paul is disqualified from preaching in those places. And if Paul can't preach, then the gospel doesn't go forward. So, Timothy, you must be circumcised. Not so you can be saved, so you can do ministry. Well, I'm uncomfortable with that, Paul. Well, then you're not qualified for the mission. That's painful, Paul. It's not comfortable. Then you're not qualified for the mission. For love's sake, be circumcised so that your faith in Christ can be known to all the Jews we come in contact with. That you trust not your circumcision with hands, but the circumcision of the heart through the glory, glorious grace of Jesus Christ. Don't let a roadblock or a stumbling block in your culture keep you from preaching the gospel. That's what Paul would say. It is not for freedom's sake that you have been set free. It is not for freedom's sake, Christian, at Grace Fellowship, that you have been set free. It is for the sake of Jesus Christ that you have been set free. And you are no longer a slave. You are free. So you can do anything that gets the gospel to the nations. You're free. Romans 14. That's where Paul would put circumcision, I think, at this point in his life. He would say, hey, you eat. Uh, you don't eat to, uh, meat offered to idols, or you do. Doesn't matter. You're circumcised or you're uncircumcised. Doesn't matter. What's the, what's the question that has to be answered? How does it impact the people I'm trying to share the gospel with? Paul, a Jew, was a Jew all of his life. He didn't quit being a Jew when he became a Christian. He was culturally still a Jew. He preferred their diet. He preferred their dress code. He preferred everything that he had grown up preferring. But when he went into Corinth and there were all these people eating and drinking and doing that, 1 Corinthians 9 says, I became a Gentile for the sake of the Gentiles. What did he do? What did he, do? he went in. He sat down at their table. He didn't ask any questions. And when they offered him food that they didn't say where it came from, he ate it. Because it didn't matter. Been offered to an idol, maybe, but I didn't ask, and I don't know. My conscience isn't bound, and I'll eat it. I know this is controversial, but Paul could have sat down 
after Bruce Haynes smoked a Boston bun. If, and he could have ate that Boston bun, even though his stomach would have said, this is terrible, and, and he would have paid the price later for doing it because he had never eaten pork his whole life. Why would he do it? If Bruce, Bruce he would, if he knew Bruce doesn't know Jesus Christ, and this meat doesn't separate me from God. And so, I will eat this meat, and I will share the gospel with Bruce. Now, if he had his choice, he wouldn't eat that meat, probably. He'd go on with his life, and he wouldn't do that. But it's not about your choice, Christian. And it's not about your freedom, American. It's about the gospel of Jesus Christ. So circumcise, you must, Timothy. And what does Timothy do? He gets circumcised. <laughs> he was willing to take the hit. He was willing to do what it took. And he joins the Apostle Paul's mission. And this exemplifies the truth that our freedom in Christ is not given to us for the sake of freedom. He circumcised Timothy even though it wasn't required by God so that he and Timothy can go on mission together without a stumbling block and preach to the nations. The Gentiles, the kings, and who? The children of Israel. He, he said, look, we're going to lose a target audience if you don't get circumcised, so it's time. Okay, I'll do it. And they went together. Man. Finally, we can be certain that Paul is not backtracking on his unity that he found in Jerusalem over the gospel. And how can we be so certain? Well, because later he takes Titus with him. And in Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, it says that the Jewish brothers at Galatia required or were trying to require that Titus, a Gentile, not a Jew at all, no heritage with the Jewish people, he was a Gentile, be circumcised. And the Apostle Paul, can you imagine Timothy? I'm sorry. Timothy's standing here, Titus is right there, and, and, the, and the Jewish people are saying, Circumcise him, Paul. He needs to be circumcised. You know you're a good man. You know he needs to be circumcised. Tim's like, that's right. It's your turn, buddy. I done seen this show. I lived through it. Get ready. And then Paul said, absolutely not. And Timothy says, what? <laughs> Why? Titus is a Gentile. If he becomes a Jew, then it proves to the Jews that their Jewishness is important. And so Paul said, may it never be. You will not circumcise him. But to Timothy, he says, hey, you're a Jew, buddy. And we're going to go preach the gospel to the Jews. And they ain't going to hear you unless you get circumcised. So you need to be circumcised. There's things in your life, Grace Fellowship, that fit in this category. And I'm not going to tell you what they are. But you need to figure them out, and you need to die to them, and you need to put them on the cross and let them die, and you need to go on preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. If it's your family, if it's your customs, if it's your culture, it's got to die so Christ may live. Paul had the greatest love for his culture of any human that ever walked the face of the planet. He was willing to go to hell so the Jews could go to heaven. You don't love the United States that much. And yet he said, it don't mean anything to be Jewish or to not be Jewish. What matters is Christ and him crucified. That's gospel, mission, that's passion, that's zeal. What does all of this lead to? Increase. And it says in verse 5, the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. Why? Because they didn't let family stand in the way of the gospel going forward. They didn't let friendship, they didn't let custom, they didn't let culture. They said we're on mission to get the glory of Christ to the end of the earth and nothing will stop us. And that's the same hope we have to have, Grace Fellowship. We are called to sacrifice for the gospel mission just like they sacrificed. Let me ask you this question. What people, what comfort, what custom are you unwilling to cut out of your life for the mission of Jesus Christ? Paul is saying to you this morning that you must take up your cross and follow Christ. Whatever it is. Some of you need to talk about it at your lunch table today. And as a family, you need to lay that thing, whatever it is, out there for God 
and say, it's dead to me because my neighbor needs the gospel. My son needs the gospel. My wife needs the gospel. Whatever it is. But I want to ask you another question also. Who in here feels that they're in the place of John Mark today? You're sitting here feeling like such a failure. Well, Barnabas and our text are saying to you that though you failed, yet you can be used for Christ. So you at your lunch table today need to let that guilt and shame go. And you need to submit yourself under the humble discipleship of someone further in the faith than you. And you need to grow and you need to go out and start sharing the life-giving hope of Jesus Christ. Tomorrow, not after you go to seminary or any of those things. You need to do it tomorrow. At Grace Fellowship, more than hearing Paul or Barnabas this morning, I want you to hear the voice of your Savior. Jesus is calling us this morning to sacrifice, to suffer, so that the mission can go forward. And I want to say to you, he's worth it. His glory has to be our ultimate aim. These are Jesus' words to us or something like it this morning. I find it so helpful that we sing these songs that we sing. Listen to this word from Psalm 67. Listen to what Jesus would be saying to you this morning. May God be, be gracious to you or to us and bless us. And make his face to shine upon us that your, your way may be known on the earth. Your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the people praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the people with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth, listen to this, this is our text. The earth has yielded increase because Barnabas and Paul went their way and because Timothy was circumcised and went with Paul. The earth yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Jesus is teaching us from this passage that whoever we are in this life, our aim must be that the nations receive the glorious message of Jesus Christ crucified, risen, and ascended and coming again. That's what our text wants us to go home with. So let's join together, Grace Fellowship. Let's join one another in joining our brothers and sisters, in the field for his glory, for his name, until he comes again. Let the nations be glad. Let them be glad because the soldiers in the army of the Lord at Grace Fellowship cut everything of no worth and no value and some things that were valuable for the sake of the kingdom and the glory of Christ and the carrying of our cross so that the sufferings of Christ are filled up and the people come forth from the nations and the earth yields its increase to our great God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, as we bow our heads, before only you can make the nations glad. The nations rage and the nations plot in vain. For the king of heaven has already drawn a bullseye on them. Those who will not have you, Jesus, the bullseye reads death forever. And to those whom you chose in your grace before the foundation of the world, as they hear the gospel, the bullseye says life. But God, we admit that there's so many things we love. So many people that we love that right now we know are preventing us from being on mission. So would your spirit today and in the days to come convict us and challenge us and help us to commit 
fully to your call on our life. May this church be filled and overflowing with Paul's and Barnabas's and John Mark's and Timothy's to the glory of Jesus Christ. Until you come again, we pray. Amen. Thank you for being here this morning. And I pray that the word is a challenge and a preparation for the week to come. If you have any questions, any thoughts, anything that you might need to share with a pastor, we're all available to have that happen. So go ahead and uh, don't be hesitant. Uh, Corey is here, Aaron, Bruce. I see uh, Adam Swan. Um, I don't see Carlton. Carlton's not here today. Um, myself. So we love you. We want you to, to go to Jesus. We want you to go to Jesus. And when you go, do what only broken, humble people can do. Offer yourself to him a living sacrifice. Fully acceptable. For this is reasonable based on what we've heard today. And know this. His mercy is more. His grace is everlasting. His love knows no end. And his acceptance of you is based on him and his goodness and righteousness and not on you. Come to him if you're weary. And Christian, come to him that you may go out from him and preach this glorious gospel until he comes. May our dying breath be one accord. Jesus Christ is king. You're dismissed. Jesus, thank you.